I was uh, blessed watching those uh, baptisms. You know, there are some things that I miss from being in the pastorate. I pastored 47 years. And so uh, in the course of that, you know, you do a lot of things. And one of the things that I always enjoyed uh, was seeing follow, uh, people follow the Lord in believers' baptism. And so that was a blessing to me tonight. God bless you, sweet lady and sweet young lady. And God bless you, sir. God bless you. I appreciate this so very much. appreciate the opportunity to be here and share in this time. Now, there's been a lot of, a lot of different um, conversations in the last few minutes about where I'm from. Uh, and so I'd like to clarify where I come from, okay? Uh, I was born in North Carolina, and um, uh, I grew up uh, in the early, early days of my life. And I'm talking about when I was one, two, three, four, five, six years of age in a little town that I didn't think anybody would ever, ever know about or hear about but called Kenley, North Carolina. Now, Kenley now, there's a lot of people talking about it because it was just recently on Fox News. That is the little town where the sheriff, his last name was Gibson, and all of his deputies walked out and quit because they had, they had hired a city manager that was woke. And because she was woke, they walked. And uh, uh, I wish more folks do the same thing, personally. But anyway, when I was born in that little town, uh, country, country, country. When I grew up, uh, population about 750. It's grown since then. I think they got 1,000 now. And, uh, but uh, it was tobacco country, just 12 miles from Wilson, North Carolina, which was the uh, capital of Brightleaf uh, tobacco in the world. And I grew up on the farms and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, my dad, I'll never forget my dad. I don't normally tell this. My dad was a tenant farmer. And he said, what is that? That means he didn't own any land, and he just took care of other folks' land for him. And the first year that he, that he was, uh, him and my mom were married, uh, that they, uh, and fun, they were out on their own in the farm, he lost $50. He didn't make enough money to even pay for the, uh, the fertilizer and the seeds and all, all the labor involved. And he, he lost 50, uh, 50 bucks. Um, and, oh, oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. He made 50 bucks his first year, and he thought that was pretty good. And he had been borrowing the neighbor's mules in order to tend the farm and, uh, or the owner's uh, uh, mules. So he went out and bought him a mule and paid about 50 bucks for the mule and all the things he had to have to go with it. The next year, he lost $50. And he told my mom, he said, there's got to be a better way to make a living than this. And so he got a job at the shipyard in Newport News, Virginia. And then uh, he was in doing, uh, matter of fact, that's what took his life. He was a, uh, uh, a pipe fitter and getting those tight quarters and working on the pipes. And that was in the days when they were covered with what? Asbestos. And he wound up with lung cancer and died at 59 years of age. But he, they had the big cutback and he got laid off and they, we, everybody was homesick. So we moved back to Kinley. He got a job working on all kinds of things, but he got interested in electronics and took a, a correspondence course and uh, uh, got a job in Lynchburg, Virginia, working at the, at, the, uh, at the General Electric plant. Now, in North Carolina, where I grew up, there was no such thing as an ABA church, and there, wasn't, there was no such thing as an independent Baptist church. There was one missionary Baptist church, but it wasn't doing too good. And we, I, we, we, I grew up free will Baptist. So whenever I, we moved to Lynchburg, there wasn't a single free will Baptist church in Lynchburg. So um, they were working at General Electric, and 
some folks started inviting them to go to a church that was just starting, had a young pastor. He wasn't even married. And they had just purchased their first building and the Donald Duck uh, Bottling Company building, as a matter of fact. And so we began to visit that church and really liked the pastor and liked the church. That pastor, by the way, was Jerry Falwell. And, uh, and so I grew up at the Thomas Road Baptist Church. My dad, after about three or four years, bought a lot in Vista Acres and uh, built a home. The year before that, Jerry and Maisel, his wife, got married. By the way, everybody called him Jerry, so I'm not being disrespectful, Dr. Falwell. Uh, Jerry and Maisel got, got married, and they bought a lot, two lots down from us and built a house. So I literally grew up in my teenage years living about three doors down from Dr. Falwell. He ate more collard greens and chocolate pie at my mother's table than you can imagine. And he became not only my pastor, but my dear friend. My mom and dad and my two sisters were saved and loved God, served the Lord. My dad worked in the TV ministry. He was one of two men that literally pulled the conduits and hung the lights and went and learned how to run the cameras and all the rest to help the old-time gospel hour go on the air back in the early days. And, uh, but I was, uh, I was the unsaved one. I was the black sheep. But one Thursday night, my mom begged me to go to a revival service. And uh, I, I finally gave in and went. And what got me was she said, son, the evangelist is very unusual, and they're going to have a lot of music. So I thought it would be mostly just singing. Well, I got there, and there was a big choir from Danville Baptist Tabernacle, and there was a, uh, a, a quartet that come from Texas to be with the preacher. He was from Texas. And, and then he got up and began to preach. I cleaned my fingernails and flipped through the songbook, and everything, didn't pay any attention. And uh, he'd preach a while, and then he'd sing a while. Well, he said it was singing, Brother John. It was sort of like singing. And... Uh, but at the invitation, God the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. I was under deep, deep conviction, holding on to the back of the pew. I had sat with my family that night, first time in several years I'd done so. My mom looked down and saw how deeply I was under conviction, leaned over weeping and said, Son, if you'll go, I'll go with you. And I stepped down, walked down the aisle, and met an old deacon by the name of Mr. Mayberry. He took me aside in the little room opened the word of God and showed me verses my mom and daddy showed me many, many times and talked to me like the same way mom and daddy talked to me many times, but this time I had an open ear and an open heart. And I invited the Lord Jesus to come into my life. I'll never forget it on that April 1st, 1965 night. As I bowed and invited the Lord in my, in my life, I could feel the tears of my mother falling on the back of my neck. And uh, I never, never, never forgot that. I got saved that night, and then a few weeks later, actually a couple months later, Dr. Falwell saw me, and he came to me, and he said, he said, Rudy, I'd like for you to consider going to Bible college. I said, okay, what are you talking about? I had my life all planned out. I was working at Holiday Inn. I'd started there when I was 15. I'd worked my way up. I was, I was 17, not even 18 years of age. I already carried the title of kitchen manager in a five-star restaurant, kicking all, uh, cooking all kind of fancy stuff. Lobsters, new burgers, and grottens, and, and all that kind of mess. And I, I, I was going to have been offered to go to college to study management, and then go away and get a degree in, in restaurant management, and come back and possibly take over the five restaurants that Archie Parish owned. He had no one to leave them to, and so that was going to be my, my going to be my life was the restaurant business. And uh, but I, uh, by the way, the only the only claim to fame I have, the only claim to fame is that one night I cooked in a glassed-in grill sitting out in the middle of the, um, of the um, right, 
you know, in the middle of, of, of a dining area. And I, people would watch me cook their steaks. And then I also had an electric cart, and I'd push that cart around, and I'd cut prime rib at the table that I cooked and capped and, and, uh, and served and, and served them at their table. And so one night an entourage came in, and Wilma Hedrick came by me. She said, did you see who came in? She was one of the waitresses. I said, no, who was it? And she said, it's Johnny Cash. I said, well, all right, well, Johnny Cash. And so she, uh, a few minutes later, she came back. She said, Johnny Cash wants a, what, what wants a, wants a flaming young. I said, okay. She said, but he wants it Pittsburgh. I said, all right. She said, do you know what that is? I said, I ain't got a clue. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to cook it. She said, you don't know what it is. How are you going to cook it? I said, I'm going to ask Jack Quick. He's from Pennsylvania. He's uh, our our manager. I, I got in touch with Jack. I ran him down, found him. I said, Jack, what's Pittsburgh? He said, he wants it to look like a piece of coal, black, charred, burnt black, both sides and all around. Nothing, everything's got to be black, like a piece of coal. But on the inside, he wants it to be red and raw cold. He said, can you do that? I said, yeah, I know it. So I went back, got a pair of long tongs, turned those burgers up, got them as hot as I could, threw that fillet on there, put it in that oil, hit it. And when I did, it went whoosh. And of course, everybody, everybody in the, in, in the dining hall went, oh, you know. And here's this young kid up there with a pair of long tongs. I'm standing there because the, and the hottest part of a flame is right at the top. And so I just kept turning. Every time it started to go down, I'd dip it in that oil again. Whoosh. Here I go again, you know. And I kept turning it, and I got it charred all the way around. I put it on some toast points and put the art varnish around it, handed it to the woman to serve, and she said, I am not serving that you burn it. I said, it's Pittsburgh, serve it. Well, finally she agreed to do so, and she took it out there, and a few minutes later, I don't know, maybe another 30 minutes, 45 minutes, she said, Johnny Cash wants to see you. Oh, Lord, my heart dropped. I said, he's going to chew me out for burning this steak. So I go walking out there very sheepishly, and I walked up, and I walked out, and I said, yes, sir, Mr. Cash. He said, young man, did you cook that, that filet? I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, uh, I want you to know that's the best filet mignon I've had since I left Pittsburgh. I said, and I was fried up then, you know. He said, and he reached over, and he handed me a $10 tip. Now, that filet only cost nine ninety nine, and I only was making a dollar and ten cents an hour, so that $10 was more than I was going to get paid for eight hours' work. And he handed me that $10, and I tell people all the time, I've been walking the line ever since. I tell you. <laughs> That's a true story. But I quit there, and I went away to Tennessee Temple with the idea that I would be there at the request of my pastor for a couple of years, learn the Bible, and then come back and, and go back into the restaurant business. But no, little did I know, God had other plans. On January 25th of my uh, 1966, in a revival meeting, don't even, it was a Bible conference. I don't even know who was speaking. I don't remember. All I remember is that God got a hold of my heart. I walked the aisle of the Highland Park Baptist Church and said I surrendered my life for full-time service. And I graduated in 1970, went to Roanoke, Virginia, and was sent out by my home church, Thomas Road, and started a church and stayed there for 19 years. I left there. I went into evangelism and because of the illness of our son. In the back of some books, and one of the books back there is a book written about our, my life and our family living with a brain-damaged child. He was perfectly normal until he was seven. I have a message I preach on that. And if you'll um, you know, talk the pastor into it, maybe have me back and I'll come back and preach on five lessons I learned from tragedy. I preached that this morning at Wagon Wheel. But anyway, I, um, 
I stayed there, and uh, I, I, stayed, I, I left there after 19 years. And because of the illness of our boy, my wife became a slave to our home. I came off the road and took a church in uh, Uniontown, Pennsylvania, Calvary Baptist Church. And I was there, and then I went from there to Napa Valley, Baptist Church, which is the ABA church that I pastored. It was an ABA church, and how I got introduced to the ABA. I finished up at, at, uh, uh, in Sanford, Virginia, pastoring a church there for 16 years, and then I retired, sort of. And I just started preaching around. My first year I was in retirement, I preached in 60 churches, and so somebody said, I thought you retired. I said, I did. I retire every, every Monday morning. And then I refire every Saturday morning when I get back on the road to go preach again. And I tell you all that to lead up to what I want to talk to you about. Uh, oh, so where do I live now? Well, I held a revival in the 30th Avenue Baptist Church. That's one of our sister churches. Pastor Crittenton was there for many, 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 many years. You ladies who read your the ABA ladies publication, don't remember the name of it. There's always an article written there by Mrs. Lois Crittenton. That was the wife of, of Pastor Crittenton. She's very close to me. I'm going to St. Petersburg next week, and even though I'm married, I will, me and Miss Lois will go out to dinner one night and just have a wonderful time. She's uh, nearly 90 years old, but I always take her out to dinner when I'm in town. My wife used to do that, my, my deceased wife, when I was on the road about every time. When I'd leave and go out, she, and so when... My wife died. She said, well, my, my dinner partner's gone. A few weeks after, I got to thinking about it, and I called her. I said, could I, take, could I take you to dinner? And she said, absolutely. At that time, I was single. But nonetheless, I held a revival in the 30th Avenue Baptist Church, and I mentioned while I was preaching, Dr. Bill Pennell was a pastor there then, and I'd known Dr. Pennell many, many, many years. I preached for him when he was at the Forest Hills Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, back and many, many years ago, but nonetheless, I, I, I mentioned in one of my sermons, my wife's always wanted to live in the warm weather near the water. On Wednesday night after the service, Dr. Pennell came to me and he said, uh, the deacons would like to meet with you. I said, the deacons want to meet with me. He said, yeah, I said, that's why I left the pastorate, so I wouldn't have to have them meetings. But anyway, he, uh, <laughs> he no, seriously, they, they want to talk to you. So I went in, Dr. Jimmy Williams, Chair, chairman of the board, and he said, um, were you serious about me wanting to live in the warm weather near the water? I said, well, my wife really is. He said, well, we have a house over here. You can have it. If you'll pay the utilities, we'll help you fix it up. You and your wife can move in. And we had a, a, a large home in Sanford, North Carolina, very nice home. And I called my daughter, and I said, if Mom and I want to move to Florida, will you sell your house and move in our house and take over the mortgage? She said, absolutely, because she had two, two teenagers, and we had a huge house. And so that's what we did, and we moved to, um, to St. Petersburg. So I'm born in North Carolina. I pastored in Virginia, all right? Then I come back to North Carolina and pastored. Then I went, then I went to St. Petersburg, Florida in retirement and started traveling, speaking, and speaking in predominantly uh, ABA churches in those, at that time. And then two years ago, my wife suddenly passed away. And so I was there alone, and I said, well, I'll never remarry. And yet I, I, I got on the road. I drove 3,500 miles, preached in four states, 
I just told my daughter, I said, I'm going to preach myself to death. Literally, preaching's going to die. But the last meeting I had was in Richmond, Virginia. One of my preacher boys at Heritage Baptist Church. And um, I don't have time to tell you the story. I've already taken more time than I should. But there was a young lady there, the secretary of the church. I knew her name was Terry, so I knew. And I mentioned, and I found out how old she was. I was surprised because she doesn't look her age. I made the comment jokingly, I might, I might take her to dinner sometime. I asked her to go to dinner sometime. Monday morning, Darren called me. My daughter was in the car with me. I was in Sanford visiting her. And he said, I, well, I pulled a 16-year-old trick on you. I said, Darren, what'd you do? He said, when Terry came in this morning, I told her you may ask her out to dinner. She said she hadn't been out with a man in eight years, but if you asked her, she might go. So I asked her to go out. We went out to dinner. I was back in town about two months later. We went out to dinner. And then we went out to dinner. And then we went out to dinner. And I'm getting home tomorrow night, and we're going to go out to dinner. And uh, see, we, a few, few weeks ago, we got married. And so now uh, she takes care of her 92-year-old her father. So I am now living in Virginia again. So uh, uh, I'm, I still have the house in Florida. While I was in Florida, though, I, I got a phone call. Well, actually, I called and set up a breakfast with a man by the name of David Gibbs III. Now, for clarity, there are two David Gibbs. There's David Gibbs, the daddy. Back in 1970s, I was involved with the, uh, the, the founding and starting of CLA with Roy Thompson and Charlie Craze and, and David Gibbs. And we were one of the, one of the biggest and first uh, situations that David Gibbs' uh, father, the junior, uh, junior he is, was involved in. We were, had a daycare in our school, and, the day, and they came in and told us that we would have to we would have to meet the state uh, regulations, and we couldn't. Uh, we, they didn't want us to spank the children, which is not so bad. But we had, they wanted us to get rid of the Becca curriculum and go to a more of an open uh, teaching. That was the year of the child. So, how many of you remember the year of the child? I debated ACLU attorneys twice in the year of the child on the matter of who had the, uh, the authority for, to, to decide what was going to be taught and how it was going to be taught. Uh, for daycare children in daycares. Of course, they, uh, they told me I could either shut our daycare or, uh, or I, could, I would be in contempt and would face going to jail. I told them I could not shut down the daycare. They asked me why. I said, because I didn't open it. They said, what do you mean didn't open it? I said, the Lord opened it, and he'll be the only one that closes it. And so, make a long story short, a local uh, politician, Dickie Cramwell, heard about the situation and asked me to meet with him. I did. And there was a House bill, House Bill 276 introduced, uh, 279 introduced, is still law in the state of Virginia and also 20 other, 23 other states that exempts what church-related daycares can teach from the control and oversight of state governments. And that was because of our challenge on that. David Gibbs III, this is his son, is one year older than my daughter. And whenever I met with him in St. Petersburg, he said, when I grew up, you were a household uh, name. My dad talked about you all the time. And I had, I had met him and had him speak for me in, in, in Sanford, North Carolina. And he asked me at that time, he said, would you, would you be willing to be a ministerial representative of NCLL? 
NCLL is a legal ministry that comes alongside churches to do several things. First of all, we come alongside to you to provide you with materials so that you can be ready and be prepared, be able to minister, and be able to exercise your religious liberties as guaranteed under the First Amendment. How many of you know times have changed? I was talking to your pastor. He's going to get this a second run at this. I was talking to him when I, when I started our church in, uh, and or, or founded our church and we were writing our bylaws. Now, your bylaws is not your church covenant. Your bylaws is not your constitution. Your bylaws are, is the operating statement of your church, your governance, how you operate, what you do. And so we stated in our bylaws that we believed that marriage was between one man and one woman. I'm sorry, folks, that's not good enough today. Today, you must say we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman as they were at birth. Transgenderism has changed a lot of things. Most churches never even look at their bylaws. They wrote them when they organized the church. They filed somewhere. Some churches don't even know where they're at. And I have been in some of our churches that said they didn't even have any bylaws. They didn't need them. All right, fine. Uh, but whatever. Uh, you can tell the Baptist some things, but not much. But anyway, so anyway, I, uh, we recommend that you review your bylaws at least every two to three years. We, you can call our office. Matter of fact, I told your pastor this, just gave him the phone number. And he can call in the morning and say, I'd like to have a template of, of what, what is suggested by the attorneys at NCLL as bylaws. You don't adopt what we send you. Well, you lay that beside your bylaws, and then you take out and put in the legal terminology that needs to be to, uh, to ensure that you have the legal protections uh, by your documents of governance, your bylaws, to help face the issues of today. So we provide those kind of things. We provide uh, facility use documents. In other words, agreements. People want to use your building. Even though they may, may be good, godly people and all the rest, they ought to sign that because that means, that, that, that means you, they are perpetuating what you believe. And what you, if you don't do that and you just open it up, even though it may be people you agree with and all, somebody comes in and says, I want to use this and uh, we're gay and we want to use this for your, your facility for such and such, and you say no, and you have allowed others that were not affiliated, the government can declare your building to be a a public, uh, public use facility, and if they had a mind to, they can file a lawsuit and it could jeopardize your nonprofit status and so on. We, um, so we provide you information. We also come alongside you if you, have a, if you have a problem. We are your protector. We are your legal, uh, your legal resource. We are your legal representatives. If you are a supporting church, not any church, but if you are a supporting church, we, ask, we, we give you permission to list us as your as, as list, uh, David Gibbs, Gibbs Law Firm, NCLL, as, uh, as your legal counsel. And you can call us seven days a week. It doesn't make any difference. There's always somebody on, on call to accept calls because of the emergency situation that we face. Our organization, NCLL, has grown unbelievably. I just cannot believe, even the years that I've been with it, to see how it's grown. We just added a couple, three more attorneys. We've got four or five paralegals. 
We have offices uh, around the country, and we literally represent churches all over everywhere. Sometimes I go to churches and I hear, well, I don't know if we really need that. My dear friend, may I say this to you? In the climate that we are living in right now, politically, it isn't a matter of if you will need legal counsel. It's when. There are a lot of things going on. I don't know how well you know the, 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 uh, the Florida church is. I would respect Pastor uh, John knows uh, Walt Lanier. Walt has a ministry where he has, he has apartments. I've stayed in them. My, wife, my deceased wife and I stayed in them for three months when we were speaking in Florida back years ago. Beautiful apartments that they have. And the city of uh, Winter Haven sent him a letter and said they are not, that those apartments are not used for worship. And so now we're going to, you're going to have to start paying uh, property tax. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, he's about 45 minutes to an hour from Disney. And so you can imagine the value of his property, sort of like what you would have here. And he called me up and he said, Doc, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, we can't afford to pay that. I guess we'll just have to sell them or shut them down or what. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because the, the, the taxes would, could be as much as up in the hundreds of thousands, $100,000 a year. And I said, don't do that. Don't do anything. Let me call, let me call David. And I got in touch with Attorney Gibbs. And I actually, Scott Miller handled the situation because he was in court out of our Texas office, fired off a letter, got him on the phone, and they said, oh, that was a mistake. That should never happen. Uh, you, you, you're, you're fine. You go ahead you, and you, you can maintain your, your, your tax exemption. That wasn't a mistake. That was an attempt to tax the properties of the church. If you doubt that, just less than 45 minutes to an hour from him in Orange County, and uh, another church, is a startup church, had just bought a building, and um, it's not an ABA church, it's an independent church. The young man who started it's Haitian, and uh, Jean-Claude Marin, Jean-Claude called me, and he said, I don't know what to do. I just got a letter from the city. They said that they did not take our, 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 our land and properties when we bought it off of the tax rolls, and we owe back taxes of $80,000, and we only got 30 people. There's no way in the world we can pay that. I called the attorney's office again, Rita Browse, I, one of our uh, attorneys went down, met with the tax people, and they said, oh, no, that was a mistake. That, no, no, that, that, that's fine. Don't worry, you don't have to pay that. But I'm running into that all over the country where municipalities are beginning to see that they need tax revenues and one of the resources, and by the way, can I say this, and I don't know if I'm being taped or not, I am, I am, if I'm not, I'm not, but I'm telling you, those 87,000 uh, IRS agents that we just are in the process of uh, seeing come on board, one of the areas they're gonna be looking for are Elemosinary, that's nonprofit ministries to tax. You say, well, if we lose our taxes, that's a big deal. Well, that means we just don't have to, we can't take our, our giving as a, as a, uh, a tax write-off. Oh, it also means you're going to pay property tax. It also means every year you're going to have to file a P&L, a, a profit and loss statement, and any money you have in the bank will be listed as profit, and you'll be taxed on that just like an S-Corp or a C-Corp. could be 30 35% of the money, and that's every year. It'll bankrupt the average small church. Satan's live and well. 
And the only and the way that we we recommend that you combat that is be sure your documents are in order. Number two, be sure that you're taking care of uh, your child protection, uh, the child protection aspect of your ministry. Let me give you three things quick, and then I'm going to preach. And I'm going to preach short, so you will get out early, all right? My messages are like link sausages. You can cut them off about anywhere. And, uh, <laughs> but in the matter of prior protection, let me give you some things you ought to do. Number one, anybody and everybody, I don't care if it's the preacher, I don't care if it's you or you or you or you, that are going to be involved with children, you ought to have, to have, you ought, you ought to have on file a background check. Uh, I, you say, well, I don't know if we need that. Well, I can tell you you need that. Uh, I had, a, I had a, a young man several years ago come to the church that I pastored. Nice young man. Nice. And he, and he came in. He joined the church. Gave a great testimony. Came from another Baptist church. and Like faith, like practice. Whole, everything was great. After about, I don't know, seven or eight months, he said, I, I don't think I'll get involved in the children's ministry. We had a big water program. So he got involved with the water program. Uh, one of the men who worked in my one program was Bo Hedrick. Bo was one of my deacons, and he ran the um, uh, girls and children's um, ministry, uh, not ministry, but um, uh, anyway, uh, what is it called? Uh, boys and Girls Club. He ran the Boys and Girls Club. So he came to me one day, and he said, he said, he said Pastor, he said, I haven't seen anything. I have no reason to say this other than just a gut feeling in my and years of experience I've had. Did we do a background check on him? He just doesn't seem to be exactly the right way I, I watch him interact with the kids. And I said, well, I'll check. So I called our, our, our sheriff, Tracy, and I said, Tracy, do we, uh, did we do a background check? He said, yeah, you did one. And I said, I thought. And I went to our files, and we had it. I said, uh, uh, did you, you didn't see anything. I said, well, the, the report we got, he was okay. He said, yeah, but if Bo Hedrick said he's got some suspicions, let me run a, a more thorough check. FBI check, that means multiple states. That means all the states, not just the state that he was in. He called me in a few weeks and he said, hey, Doc, you got a problem. He's a pedophile, registered pedophile in the state of Pennsylvania. You see, you got to understand, these are different days, folks. And so everybody ought to have uh, a background check if they're going to work, work with kids. It's your, for your protection as well as the protection of children. The second thing is that you ought to have some training for your workers, at least acknowledge your workers and have some gathering to give them information about what to watch for. The, I was just talking in the office and one of the brothers was back there happens to be involved in the school system. And if you work with children, you are mandated. And you say, what does that mean? That means if you see a bruise or you see something out of the ordinary, you are required by law to report that. Your pastor is mandated. There's no such thing as pastoral immunity anymore. That went away years ago. And so you're mandated. So one thing you ought to know, you ought to know what to look for and all of that. And uh, let me give you an illustration of some things. Let's say, God forbid, you have a situation where you are, somebody is accused of, of, of child abuse in your church and then you wind up in court all right and so I'm going to be the prosecuting attorney okay and I'm going to call for your pastor because I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to question him and I'm going to put him on the stand and I'm saying, now Pastor Richardson uh, we, I, I, I subpoenaed your uh, uh, 
uh, your last five months or six months or three years, five years, whatever, of um, a business meeting, minutes. And I've gone over your minutes pretty thoroughly, and I notice in the minutes that you are really, y'all are really a very careful church the way you handle your money. I mean, you know, you vote on everything to be spent, and the budget's there, everything's out there. Very transparent. Y'all are really into that. He would say, absolutely. And then I would say, but pastor, I don't see anywhere where y'all do anything as far as training or updating or encouraging or anything your children's workers to be aware of possibilities of problems that they're having. And, and Could I conclude from that, pastor, y'all are much more interested in your money than you are your children. You just lost. So we recommend that you do something, whether it's quarterly, six months, it doesn't have to be a formal thing. It can just be, hey, we're going to have a meeting of all of our teachers, anybody working with our, all of our children's workers, and we're just going to talk about how we've got to be careful about this and just, go, just talk about it. And it's like 10, 15, 20 minutes, but put it in the minutes of your church that you did it. By the way, you need to check your insurance policy because most insurance policies today, if they're any size, they will state in there if you do not have some of that kind of information for those who work in children and there is a liability suit filed against them, they will not honor payment of the legal fees and all the rest of the liability. I asked an insurance agent that at our state meeting this year and he danced like he was on hot coals because it's true. And they do on some of their policies, he said. So I don't know about yours. So we try to help you understand those kind of things. We will review your insurance policies. We will review your contracts. We will go over all those things for you. And you say, well, what does all that cost? Nothing. It is a ministry. You say, well, how do you do it for nothing? We ask churches to partner with us. Partner with us means we become one of your missionaries. I try, part of what I do is go around and give reports as to what we're doing to, our, to the churches that, are, that support us. So I encourage you, I encourage you, be prudent, be careful. This is the Lord's work, folks. Amen. We ought to be circumspect in the way we handle the work of God. Be aware and be careful. How in the world did we ever get in this mess? If you have your Bible, show me in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 22. How did we ever get into this mess? What mess, preacher? How in the world did we go that when I was a teenager, now I know that's been a long time ago, that's about 50 years ago, I understand that. But when I was a teenager, homosexuality was, a, was against the law. It was called sodomy. And you could get arrested. You could be put in jail. How did we go from all of that to today? The homosexuals are and and the transgenders are a protected class. How did we go there? How did we get to the place where our our, our, our government would, 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 would voted the law the right to have same sex? How in the world did we get there? How in the world did we ever get to the place where we think we think we can take the life of an innocent child up to the time and even beyond in the state of Virginia, according to our, the former governor, not the one we have now, birth. 
And we call that in protection of women's health. Isn't very healthy for the child. How did we ever get there? Well, we could just murder babies and have no conscience. How, how, how did we ever get in this mess? How did we ever get to in such a decline of morals? Christian, and, 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 and listen, it's just as prevalent among Christians as it is unsaved folks. How in the world did we ever get in this thing that we thought we had to live together before we got married? You understand what I'm saying? How did we ever get in this mess? And the book of Ezekiel is a very interesting book. Ezekiel is a prophet during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Now, I don't have time to do a lot of exposition, but just give you a little snippet and then get to the, the things that I want to close with. And Ezekiel was, was, was trying to answer two questions <coughs> of the captives, the nation of Israel. The first question was uh, asked by these Jewish captives of this prophet wanting him to find the answer from God was, has God forsaken us? Now, I'm not going to deal with that tonight. But if you read through those early chapters and through the chapters of the book of Ezekiel, you'll find now that there's an underlying tone that the people that were in captivity were trying to figure out, why has God forsaken us? And over and over and over, God said, I haven't forsaken you. You are still my wife. I, I, Jerusalem is still my beloved city. He goes through all of that time and time again. Can I interject this? Won't charge anything extra. They're still God's chosen people, and he has not forsaken them today. And you better be careful of the kind of people you put in office today who will not protect and stand behind and by side the little country called Israel because God will bless them that bless them, and he'll curse them that curse them. That's a reality. But the second question they had was, you know, has God forsaken us? Well, if not, why are we here? Why are we the slaves in a pagan land? That's the question I want to deal with tonight. Because that's the question I think Ezekiel deals with in verse number 23 and following. Why, why, why would God allow this to happen to us? Why would God allow us to, in the name of whatever, take the life of innocent children? Why would, why, why would, why would God not judge us Severely as a nation, when we uh, and when we've fallen so far away from Him, how did we get so far away from God? How how did we get here? Why are we here? Why have we lost our moral compass as a nation? If you look with me in verse number twenty three, and I'm going to read down through twenty nine, verse twenty nine. <coughs> there are three words. Actually, there are four words that begin with the letter P in the text that I read, that identifies for us why we are in the moral mess we're in America, why we look on sin as we do in America or, or excuse it as we do in America. Here's the reason. Now, as I read, I'm going to stop and call your attention to some words and you can talk back to me, all right? Notice what he said in verse 23. And the word of the Lord came unto me. All right, who was me? Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came unto Ezekiel, and Ezekiel then gave it to the people. And the word of the Lord came unto me, said, Son of man, say unto her. Who's her? Israel. 
Always remember, Israel is always addressed in the feminine. It's always a her, she. And so he says, and so the son of man say unto her, say unto Israel, thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor reigned upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her, all right, underline this word if you underline your Bible, if you don't make a note of it, prophets. Her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion, raving the prey. They have devoured souls. They've taken the treasure and precious things. They've made her, uh, made her many widows in the midst thereof. Look at verse 26. Her priest, underline that word, her priest have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. They have hid their eyes from my Sabbath, and I am profaned among them. Look at verse 30, 27. Here's another P word. Her princess, her princess in the midst thereof are like wolves, raving the prey to shed blood <coughs> and to destroy the souls to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have daubed them in un, with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God. And the Lord didn't, hadn't, hath not spoken. Here's the last P word. The people, see that? The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Don't close your Bible because I'm going to close my message with the last verse. But I want to call your attention to the fact that there are three groups of people that are identified here who are, who are to blame, who have been given the blame for why Israel was in the mess they're in. May I suggest to you there are the three same groups that have caused us to be in the mess that we're in today. You say, well, what are they? Number one, notice in verse 25 and 26, identified the religious leaders, pastors, pastors. And there are several things I can say about that, and I'm going to say them quickly to you. Number one, there is a compromise of the truths of the word of God among most of our denominational churches. The Bible is no longer preached as the infallible, inerrant word of God. And thus, the moral values and the standards of the word of God have been compromised. You say, amen, preacher. Now when we preach, I'm going to make a comment and you can say, oh, me. Because now those, even those who preach the truth, they'll stand and preach the truth, but they're very careful how they do it because they don't want to offend the brethren. And they never deal with the issues that affect society. You know, I grew up, my grandpa used to say, God loved him, he was so wrong. You can't mix politics and religion. Thank God our founding fathers didn't know that. Do you realize that you have the First Amendment largely because of a Baptist preacher by the name of John Leland who met with James Madison multiple times and, and, and encouraged and instructed him as to the need to have a separation of, 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 of the state 
and, and, and church and uh, separation of church, they say, do you understand it was John Leland who stood on a hodgehead of tobacco in, in, outside of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and, and asked his supporters to support James Madison to send him to the, uh, to, uh, to, for the drafting of the Constitution that because he had made a commitment and a promise that he would add to that which we now have as the First Amendment of the Constitution. And thank God nobody ever told him don't mix religion and politics. And preachers have sat back and watched heathen, ungodly people get into office because, well, they're going to Put a chicken in your pot and a dollar in your pocketbook, yeah, and you're going to send your children straight to hell because of, uh, of, the, of the immorality that is allowed to come. Preachers need to stand and proclaim the truth regardless of who it offends and who they, whether they like it or not. Why are we here? Because the voice of the pulpits went silent on those issues because of the compromise, the corruption, and that is corruption, my dear friend, of the religious leaders. Number two, you notice it talks about in, in, in verse number 28 the, the, about, the, uh, about the princes there. It's talking about the rulers. How did we get here? Our religious leaders became corrupt, and that then, then our, our rulers became corrupt, and they started passing, passing all kinds of laws and mandates and all the rest. They shed blood. They destroy souls. All to get dishonest gain. I don't care whether it's Republican or Democrat or Social Democrat or Libertarian, Independence or whatever. You need to understand that we need to put some people in office that love God and want to do, and want to take care of the people and not don't be so worried about their position and the and what and the gain they're going to get from what they from the position they hold. How did we get here? Our religious leaders became corrupt. Our rulers became corrupt. Well, wait a minute. There's another P down there. The people. You see, even godly people today have lost their sensitivity to sin. Now, I give a little silly illustration to illustrate that, but I'm going to give it to you. My daddy was a TV, radio and TV repairman. He was the first color TV repairman that went house to house in eastern North Carolina. He was trained by Philco. Went away, learned how to work on color TVs. But my dad... We had an old black and white TV. I can remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting there watching. I don't remember what the show was. And did you know they used a dirty word? D-A-M-N. My daddy got up and said, we won't be listening to that trash. Now listen to me, Christian parents. What do you hear now? Anybody turn it off? Ah, be careful, preacher. You're getting awful close now. Yeah, I know. I know. I remember when I Love Lucy was on. And you never saw I Love, you never saw Lucy kiss. There's you. Oh, no. If they went into the bedroom, they had two separate beds. It's kind of like what you see now on those soap operas, right? 
All right, now, preacher, quit. You put on stop preaching and started meddling now. He said, well, what's the difference? Sin don't bother us anymore. Well, times have changed. God didn't. And his word hasn't. The people. The people. I'm done now. How about the last verse, preacher? You said you're going to close with that. Yeah. You know, our God is an amazing God, isn't he? God looked down and saw the wickedness of the people of Israel. He saw that they were, had gone after false gods. He saw they had built idols. He saw that they had denounced their faith in him. He saw all that. He saw how cruel they were. He saw all of that. But look at the last verse. It's an amazing verse. And I want you to help me now because it's getting late and you all getting sleepy. Look at verse 30. And I sought for a man. Who's I? God. I, God, sought for a man. Where did he seek for him? Among those heathen he had just described. I sought for them, a man among them that should make up the hedge, stand in the gap for me. Why? For the land. The fall of America, the responsibility rests solely on the shoulders of Christians. It's not the homosexuals that will bring this nation down. Now, I get in trouble when I make this statement every time, but I don't care. Somebody said, well, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their homosexuality. You didn't read your Bible. He destroyed them because they couldn't find ten righteous people there. Now, I'm not, con- I'm not, not condoning homosexuality, but get it right, folks. And the reason God's going to destroy America and let America fall is because they can't find a handful of Christians that will stand up and do right and be right and, 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 and meet the, the standards and the, that he has required. I sought for a man among them that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy. I'm done. With the exception of the saddest words in the Old Testament. But I found none. I found none. You reckon that the blessed Holy Spirit of God might be visiting here in Las Vegas, Nevada tonight? You reckon he might be going up and down these pews and these aisles and he seeks a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl who must make up the hedge, stand in the gap for America. Wouldn't it be a horrible thing one day to stand before our God and he said, I saw it. On that Sunday night, I saw it. But I found none. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Tonight's maybe been a little different than what you anticipated, but that's what God laid on my heart. 
It's not what I wanted to preach. I wanted to preach five lessons I learned from tragedy, but God wouldn't let me. But I wonder if there's some, somebody or somebody's that similarly start praying for our country. I'm not talking about this prayer that says, God bless America. Lord, I pray that we would just see a revival. Amen. No, I'm talking about get a hold of God. I'm talking about praying intentionally. I'm praying, talking about praying intently. I'm talking about agonizing, holding on to the horns and wrestling with God for our nation. Maybe we ought to begin by doing that by praying for our church and our pastors. But if God spoke to you tonight, I'm not going to ask the musicians to come. Pastor can do that if he wants to later. But I'm going to close with just being quiet and saying, if God has spoken to you, why don't you come? There are mourner's benches up around the front. I don't know how much they're used, but maybe they ought to be used tonight. Some people come and say, God spoke to me, preacher. I see it. I would just get up and come. If you're here and you don't know Christ is your Savior, listen, God loves you. Jesus died for you. He'll save you if you'll come to him. Just like I came that Thursday night, you can come this Sunday night and receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. He loves you. He died for you. Come to him. But Christian, can we get serious about this matter, what's going on in our country? The hope of America is not in the state house. The hope of America is not in the courthouse. No, the hope of America is not in the White House. The hope of America is in the church house. And all of our churches would just get a burden and a passion. Make up the hedge, stand in the gap for the land. Father, you have your way. Do what you will in the lives of these dear people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor, you can come close as you will. If you want to have a song, you can go ahead and lead in the song, little brother.